time, but that the Spirit would be here and that He would meet with us and talk with us. Will you join with me in prayer? Lord, we are needy people. Who are we without you? I don't want to pretend here before these people to be some great speaker or intellect or a spiritual man. You know me. You know uh, everything about me. And I pray, Lord, today that somehow, despite and in spite of my sinfulness, that you would use me to preach your word, the good news of your salvation, that I would be clear that your spirit would find use in what I have to say on the basis of your word. I pray, Lord, for those here who uh, are not among our church family. I pray, Lord, for them, that they would be ministered to. For a church family, Lord, that this time together would be edifying, would bring us closer to you and closer to each other, and joyful to be Christians, to be followers of you in this world. And I pray, Lord, for those who don't know you. There are some here who don't know you, who are still in our midst. Lord, I pray for them that your word would speak to them, that you would meet with them, Holy Spirit, and that uh, even today might be a day where they become reconciled to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have a question for you this morning. If you were to describe the meaning of Christmas in a word or a sentence, what is the meaning of Christmas according to the Bible? What would you say? What would you say? Christmas means many different things to many different people. I've experienced Christmas in India, Christmas here in the U.S. I've talked to many of our international friends from Ethiopia, from China, from other places about Christmas in their countries. And to different people, Christmas means different things in the secular world. And even to Christians, Christmas can mean different things. So how would you describe Christmas. You know, one way, one way the Bible describes Christmas is using this word, reconciliation, reconciliation. For instance, 2 Corinthians 5.19, I'm paraphrasing here, but in 2 Corinthians 5.19, the Apostle Paul writes, that in Christ, by the Lord Jesus coming to the earth, by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, the Apostle Paul writes that God is reconciling the world to himself. Interesting. Christmas as reconciliation. So, why why should we think about Christmas as reconciliation? And by the way, by using the term reconciliation, doesn't that mean 
that there was conflict in the first place, right? That conflict arose somehow. Two parties or multiple parties had a falling out. And now there's a need to be reconciled. Somehow that happened. And now they're reconciled. There's harmony, right? That's reconciliation. So today, in our time together, I just want to do three things. Children, just three things. Young people, I won't keep you long. But if you listen, if you listen carefully, okay? So just three things. I want to spend time together on the origin and effects of our conflict, our, your personal conflict with the Creator God and our collective conflict with the Creator God as humanity. So the origins and effects of our conflict with God. What could be the ordinary solution to this potential conflict, to ending the, the conflict between God and us? And number three, the extraordinary way God solved the conflict. Okay, three things. So first, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. Genesis uh, is the book of origins in the Bible. Genesis explains a lot of your condition. Friend, brother, sister, have you experienced feelings of guilt? Everybody does. Everybody does. We were discussing this Friday night uh, in the international group. Even people that don't have the Bible are not exposed to the Bible who come from other religious or faith systems or non-faith systems. Even they experience guilt. Okay, They experience shame. They experience fear. We all do. It's part of the human condition. The experience of guilt, of shame, of fear. Why do we feel this? Why do we feel this? Genesis 3 explains. And for us, we know, you know, many of us, most of us know the story in Genesis 3. God created Adam and Eve as his image bearers. He created a a whole world for them. He created a garden. He put these two human beings, our first parents, in the garden. And they had honor. God bestowed honor on them. And their honor arose. The, 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 The essence of their honor was that they were image bearers. They had a live relationship with the most beautiful, honorable, glorious being in the universe, God himself. That was their definition. They defined themselves with respect to God. That's what made them honorable. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see an event of great dishonor. By the way, I was telling a brother here, just before we started, uh, I'm an Indian Christian, and as I'm as I'm uh, as I uh, prepared this, I, I, I 
you'll see some perspective from, from the Eastern mind and heart. So, God bestowed honor. In, in chapter 3, we see Eve, our first mother. Eve chose to dishonor God. See, verse 7. Verse 7. In verse 6, we see that she took the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate. And then notice what happened. What happened? It says here, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. Interesting, isn't it? They, they, they knew after their eyes were opened, when they disobeyed God, they knew that they were naked. And what did they do? It says, and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths. Made themselves loincloths. So what happened here? It seems that Adam and Eve... They disobeyed God. We know that, right? They disobeyed God's explicit command. God says, don't eat of that tree. You can eat of everything else. Don't eat of that tree. They disobey. And in when that happened, did you notice the effects of that act upon them? Did they feel guilt? Did they feel shame? Did they feel fear? See, look here. It says, verse 7, they became aware of their nakedness. They sought to cover it from God and from each other. And then verse 8, the Lord comes. He, he comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? Did they run up to him and say, Lord, we sinned. You know what happened when you were not here? We sinned. We were deceived. God, we repent. Would you take us back to yourself? They didn't do that. Look what they did. When they heard the sound of the Lord, the man and his wife hid themselves. Hmm, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, said, where are you? And he said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid. See, sin, your experience is validated here. You feel guilt. I feel guilt, shame, fear. I heard the sound of you. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, dishonoring God turned the focus of Adam and Eve on themselves. That is sin, right? Sin is dishonoring God. And as I shared with you, you see these aspects of guilt, shame, fear here. What is guilt? What is guilt? Guilt says, what I did was bad, was wrong. What a shame. What a shame. What's the difference between guilt and shame? Shame says, because of what I did, I am bad. I am worthless. I am unaccepted. I don't belong. I am bad. And fear says, because of 
what I did. And because of who I am, I am liable to judgment. I need to hide. Something bad's going to happen to me. Now, you know, you've heard, many Christians have heard this text preached. We've thought about this. And often, we think about the emotions, the effect that Adam and Eve felt. Have you thought about how God must have felt? How God must have felt to be rejected. To be rejected. Here's God, the most glorious, beautiful, loving, caring, powerful, thoughtful being in the universe. He made these people. He gave everything to them. And they spurn him. They reject him. They say, no. How should he feel? Have you thought about that? Sin, as one missiologist says, sin, the essence of sin, is disloyalty to God. Some of you might think of sin in merely guilt categories. Sin is the breaking of God's law. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is that, but it is also more. It is essentially a disloyalty to God. It is a cheapening of God. It is telling God, you are not glorious. You are not worth me. You're not worth my worship. That's sin. Sin is the belittling, the diminishing, and the profaning of God. How should he feel like? Now, the origins of what you feel and your experience every day is rooted in what happened in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 explains to us the conflict that exists. You were born into this conflict. The conflict between you and the Creator God. You're separated. Also, do you notice, if you read Genesis 3, 4, you notice that the Lord God sent Adam and Eve where? Away from the garden, right? So now we're away. Not only geospatially, we're also away spiritually. So, conflict. There's conflict. How do we mend the conflict? Because the solution to your wholeness and my wholeness and our collective wholeness as humanity is rooted in the mending of this conflict. That's when you begin to feel whole. Some of us think of our relationship with God as transactional. This is so sad. This is so sad. We merely think of our relationship with God as transactional. I do this, you do this for me. If I'm good, I know you'll be good to me. If I'm bad, uh, you know, you, you'll be bad to me. You, you'll abandon me. No. Sin, for sin to be broken, since power to be broken, the relationship needs to be healed. So how do we mend the relationship between us and God personally and corporately? How do we do it? Now, let's turn to Luke 15. Would you turn to Luke 15, please? 
Luke 15. In Luke 15, as you're turning there, the reason I'm having us turn there is because conflict resolution in different cultures, you know, is, is somewhat different. Uh, in, in many traditional cultures, conflict resolution not only involves restitution of wrongdoing, it also involves repair of a relationship, okay? In many Western societies, Western societies appeal to a law, a common law, and common law is, it tends to be great and efficient in identifying what was wrong and how to make restitution for wrongdoing. Common law doesn't tend to go as far as caring about relationships being restored, right? But in many cultures, old and old cultures especially, restitution is one piece, but also repair of the relationship is included in mending of the conflict. And you see that in the scriptures. You see that in the scriptures. Luke 15, starting in verse 11, is a famous story. Many Christians know the story. It's a parable. The Lord Jesus shared this parable. It's the parable of the, of the prodigal son. My purpose in pointing you, pointing us to Luke 15, is Luke 15 provides a great model for conflict resolution. Okay, this is how in many cultures, including Indian culture, conflict resolution happens, it follows this model. Okay, you know the story. Do you know the story? Luke 15, a father has two sons, the younger son rises up, he says, I, give me what is due me from your property. In other words, I wish you were dead, I need your money, I care about your money, give me your money. He takes the money, the father gives him the money, he takes the money, he takes off to Thailand, goes on a beach, he's drinking, partying, he's, he, the Bible says he spent his life in reckless living. Okay? Now, let's read from verse 17. This is interesting, and pay attention here to conflict resolution. This man, this younger son, is he came to the end of himself. He spent all his money. He realized how empty his heart was. His pursuits were. And look here, he says, and when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. Hmm. And see, look here. He says, I will arise. I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, bef and before you. I am not worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he arose. He came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. Okay. You know the story. So, here, how 
did the younger son go about reconciliation? I found four things. Four things. How does he go about reconciling his relationship with his father? The offended party is the father. The offender is the son. And here, also this is in an honor-shame context, the father is greater. The son is lesser. Right? So here, what are the four things that, that, that he does? Number one. Number one. Who initiates reconciliation? Who initiates? The offender. Right? See, he says, I will arise. I will go to my father. Right? So the initiator of the of reconciliation should be whom? The offender. Two. Number two. The offender not only has to initiate reconciliation, the offender also needs to bear responsibility of the process in humility. In humility, in acceptance. Okay? That's what he did. He says, I have sinned. This is uh, verse 18. He says, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Number three. Not only has to initiate, not only does he have to initiate reconciliation, not only does he have to bear responsibility in humility, he also has to make restitution. Right? He also has to pay the cost of the breach. And he says here, don't, I, I just want to be a hired servant. Okay? Number four, his Work, his work, his effort in reconciliation needs to be accepted by the party that was offended, right? These are usually the four things in mending a conflict, okay? So this serves as a model. Now, could we do that? Could you and I do these four things in mending our relationship with God. Could you and I, or us collectively, could we initiate reconciliation? Could we bear responsibility for our wrongdoing in humility? Could we make restitution? And for could we guarantee that our efforts would be accepted? Could we do that? The Bible says, no, we can't. We cannot. The Bible uses terms and images to describe us in our hearts that are very starkly sad and helpless. The Bible says we are enemies by birth, enemies of God. We want to suffocate God. We want to suffocate. We don't want any remembrance of him. That's us. We would act exactly like Adam and Eve. We want to hide. We want to run. We want nothing to do with this glorious being in our sin. Also, the Bible says we 
exchange the glory of the immortal, invisible God for lesser things. We have no sensitivity to how much we have offended God. Okay? We have no sensitivity. Have you been in a relationship where somebody has wronged you and they don't even know the magnitude of hurt they've caused you? Insensitivity. And then could we pay for our sins to this infinite, holy God? Could we guarantee acceptance? No. So what is our hope? How can this conflict be resolved? Well, brothers, sisters, friends, that is the beauty of the Christian gospel. According to the Christian gospel, God does what is extraordinary. He did what is unconventional. He went off script. He is the one who is offended, but he took the responsibility for mending the conflict. And that is the Christian gospel. The greater one, God in the conflict, stooping to mend the relationship with the lesser. When we are his enemies, we want to hurt the hand that feeds us. He says, listen, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to take the heart of stone out of your flesh, out of your heart. You know, the heart of stone that cannot feel. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh that feels. So how did God do this? The third passage I'd like you to turn to is Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11. Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11. Remember the four things I said that need to be achieved in order to mend a relationship? The four things. Jesus does this with the Father through the Spirit. That is the brilliance of the Christian gospel. I'm going to read Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And watch here if you can see the four things. The Bible says, who, this is talking about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. In verse 6, the Bible, your translation, might use this word grasped. This is talking about Jesus. Jesus being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Recently, there's been some scholarship that that, that, that suggests that this word is better translated exploited. God, Jesus, didn't consider his equality with God a thing to be exploited. Rather, he emptied himself. He humbled himself. The greater one in the relationship, he humbled himself. And what does he do? Does he do these four things that men's relationships? Number one, does he initiate reconciliation? Yes or no? Yes? How? It says here, you and I, we have those manger scenes in our homes with a little baby. Well, here in Philippians 2, we see here the word born. He was born. He was born. It's a real act. You could have touched him. You could, you could hear him cry. You could feel him. He initiated reconciliation by coming to us. He came. We couldn't. We didn't want to. He came. And, brothers, sisters, another beauty of the Christian gospel is before time began, the heart of God beats for us so much that he planned it even before time. He wants to come. His heart beats for us. That's his heart. He initiates reconciliation. Number two, remember, a party needs to bear responsibility in humility. You know, some of us who grew up in other cultures, non-Western cultures, might be more sensitive to Scripture's depiction of Jesus as a shame-bearer. We studied Hebrews earlier this year in their international group. And throughout Hebrews, you see this idea of Jesus bearing shame. He, when he speaks in public, people cast doubt on him. He's, he's rejected by his own family members. Throughout his life, he bears shame. And he does it, the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. He bore your shame so that you don't need to live in shame. He bore, he took responsibility in humility. Even Philippians 2 says he took the form of a servant. Of a servant. Number three, he needs to make restitution for wrongdoing. Did he do that? How? Did he make a world of gold and give a great big Christmas present? No, he gave his blood, (laughs) his blood himself. He was broken. He himself was broken, the creator, to make restitution. And number four, was his life, was his death, was his sacrifice efficacious? Yes or no? Yes, why? 
Because Philippians 2 says, the world looked at him in shame. He hung on the cross in shame. But God exalted him. God raised him from the dead. That is the vindication of Jesus' life. That is what's glorious. What the world thought was shameful, God makes us glorious. So that, my brothers and sisters, is Christmas. Christmas is the reconciliation of you to God. That's Christmas, where the Creator God did this for us. Now, I want to say two things in closing, and I'm done. Number one, given what we just heard, what effect should it have on us Christians? I'm going to first speak to Christians and then, and then to those who might not know the Lord. First, I'm uh, burdened to talk to some of us who might feel the effects of shame. Okay? Guilt. Uh, Mark Lehman, Dr. Lehman, is, is one of the missionaries supported by our church. And years ago, we were talking. Mark, of course, lives in the East. He speaks fluent Mandarin. He asked me once, what is easier to take care of? Guilt or shame? What's the answer? What is easier to get rid of? Guilt or shame? Guilt. Okay, guilt. Shame is harder. Shame has ripple effects. And I want to speak to Christians today. Christians, we are confident that God's Finished work in Jesus, paid for our wrongdoing. But do you know that Jesus reconciling you to himself means that you are not your sin. You are not your past. You are not unworthy. You are accepted. You are beloved. You are not who your, your, your flesh condemns you to be. You are beloved in the Lord. You are destined in Christ, Ephesians 1 says, to be holy and blameless. That's the removal of shame. You're accepted. Jesus did that for you. And Jesus being born in that manger is proof positive that he is deeply committed to you. That's the meaning of Christmas. And two, I want to end with those who might not be followers of Jesus. Friends, God has come to earth. The King has come. And He came humbly. He came in humility. And he deserves to be accepted because he came to pay the price for your sin. He came to bring you back to himself. I want to read two verses from the Bible and I hope 
you'll consider this in desire and in fear. Desire because your guilt, your shame, your fear can be done away with today. Fear because if you reject Jesus, you'll need to explain to him. One day you will stand before Jesus and you will need to explain your rejection of him. And listen to this. This again is couched in honor-shame language. John 1, 11 and 12 and 13. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, that could be you, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the removal of shame. You're a child of God now. You have rights with God. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I hope you'll consider this today. And if you'd like to talk to any of us, we're, we're eager and willing to talk to you. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Oh Lord, on behalf of the Christians here, I just want to thank you for coming to earth taking the form of a humble servant and removing my shame. I am not my sin, Lord. I am accepted. We are accepted. We are beloved in you. What mystery, what glory. Help us to live our identity as your children. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me? We sing the song of Emmanuel, God with us. And this third stanza says, Lift up your heads, for the King has come. Sing, for the light overwhelms the dark. We lift up our heads, not in the shame of our sin, but with confidence in our Savior. And when God transforms our hearts, he always makes us sing. And we do that on Christmas, we do that year-round. God most high in a manger, so lift your voices and proclaim. Would you sing together, sing we the song of Emmanuel. the song of Emmanuel, this the Christ who was long foretold, low in the shadows of Bethlehem, promise of dawn now our eyes behold, God most high in a manger laid, lift your voices and now proclaim, great and glorious. 
us. Love has come to us. Join now with the host of heaven. Come we to welcome Emmanuel, King who came with no crown or thorn. Helpless he lay, the invincible Maker of Mary, now Mary's son. Oh, what wisdom to save us all. Shepherd, sage, as before him fall. Grace and majesty, what humility. Come on, bend and adore him. Go spread the news of Emmanuel. Joy and peace for the weary heart. Lift up your heads for the King. The light overwhelms the dark, glory shining for all to see. Hope alive, let the gospel ring. God has made a way, he will have the praise. Tell the world his name is Jesus. May you enjoy this holiday season celebrating the gift of Christ. Let us pray together. God, would you bless each one here with remembrances of the gospel throughout today and throughout this week. May we be thoughtful and remember the gift of your Son. Would you bless us also with confidence to share this message with others? Would you lead in conversation even over the next few days with those who may not know Jesus? And may we share with them the gift of eternal life and the message of the Incarnation. Would you give safety to those who are traveling this week? Would you give healing to those who are ill? Would you give comfort to those who are sorrowing? Would you provide all of our needs, and may we be reminded that you are the source of all blessing. And as we give and receive gifts, would we do so with gratitude in our hearts. Thank you for the gift of the gospel. Thank you for the word preached today, and thank you for the fellowship of the saints that we enjoy. Would you draw anyone here who doesn't know Jesus to the saving knowledge of this Christ? And it's in his name we pray. Amen. May God be with you.